The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Right, and welcome to a They Must Be Destroyed on-site bonus episode, intermission episode, as uh, Lee calls them. Uh, Lee and I, despite our best efforts, could not uh, manage to get together and actually record this week. Uh, we were supposed to do a Predator 2, Robocop 2 uh, combo episode. Uh, hopefully you'll get that next week. Uh, but until then, uh, I did uh, kind of volunteer to kind of throw a little something up today. Basically, I've watched three classic westerns this week, and I'm going to talk to you guys about them. Um, the three westerns we're going to talk about today are The Hanging Tree from 1959, My Darling Clementine from 1946, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962. Uh, we're going to do them in that order, um, despite the fact that that's not chronological, um, and the reasons for that will become uh, clear soon. I'm recording this on the day that uh, uh, 50 people, 50 at least 50 people were killed uh, in a uh, in the nightclub Pulse in Orlando. Uh, and my Twitter and Facebook feeds have been covered up with uh, people arguing about that. There's been a lot of uh, kind of um, right-wing assholes talking about, uh, you know, all Muslims deserve to die and that kind of shit, and uh, I think that's reprehensible, and uh, that's definitely going to play a little bit into some of the stuff that I have to say kind of going down uh, the rest of this uh, little intermission, mostly because I think that the Western genre, and um, at least two of these films in particular, are kind of about the question of, like, um, kind of law and order, the rule of law versus rule of men. I think that the uh, genre kind of works very well to kind of talk about, um, you know, what uh, violence is good for and the uh, reasons that we uh, build civilization and build cities and, and have uh, laws and states and that sort of thing to begin with. And um, the events of uh, last night and kind of waking up this morning and seeing this tragedy, um, the largest mass shooting in American history, uh, definitely affected the way that I kind of will maybe approach talking about these films. So um, if you uh, aren't interested in listening to me talk about that, feel free to uh, delete this now. But um, that, that will definitely kind of uh, color what you're about to hear. But uh, before that, let's uh, just move on and talk about the films a bit. Uh, uh, notably, uh, the reason that I've been watching a lot of classic westerns is actually because the, uh, and we've mentioned them on the show before, the Pex Lives podcast, nominally a Doctor Who podcast, um, have decided to do uh, a bunch of classic westerns in terms of, uh, it's kind of um, bonus content, you know, kind of at the beginning of their episodes, and uh, like in particular, in the um, first of their episodes, they covered um, three westerns over the course of about two hours, and then spent 40 minutes on the actual Doctor Who story that they were uh, actually supposed to be there to talk about. So, um, if you are a fan of westerns or a film discussion in general, I would highly recommend you go check out some of the uh, Pex Lives episodes. I'm sure Lee will include a link in the show notes um, to that most recent one, but they're doing some really, really nice stuff. Um, I have not listened to their most recent episode yet because they're doing uh, two films that I'm going to be discussing today. So uh, hopefully we'll get a little back and forth. And I know um, uh, some of the, uh, at least at least James I know, is expressed interest in coming on to this show at some time. So 
Um, yeah, go, go give them some love. Anyway, the first film I'm going to talk about today is The Hanging Tree. Uh, this is a Gary Cooper Western. Um, this is from 1959, and it's a deeply, deeply strange film. Um, it's kind of a character study of the Gary Cooper character, who is a guy with the last name of Frail. Um, it's a character study. It doesn't really have a clear like message about this guy. Uh, but somehow it also kind of feels really moralistic, um, and maybe that's just kind of the aesthetics of like what a night, what a nineteen fifty nine western is going to do. Um, just kind of makes it feel like it's trying to send some kind of uh, message. Um, but anyway, so Gary Cooper plays Frail, um, who's a doctor in uh, this kind of uh, on the outskirts of this uh, kind of tiny mining community um, out in the west somewhere, um, who rescues this guy named Rune, who's this young guy who's played by Ben Piazza uh, from a hanging. Um, so, uh, Piazza was trying to steal gold off a guy's, um, you know, claim. Um, and then forces him into this indefinite servitude, basically, uh, says, if you're not, if you don't, uh, if you're not going to, um, basically be my slave, then I'm going to, uh, turn you in, and then you're gonna hang for it. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a weird kind of thing to do. Um, Frail is kind of portrayed as sort of a good guy to the rest of the community. Um, he does provide um, cheap to free medical care to the people who can't afford to pay him. But uh, there is a little sense like um, there is a scene towards the beginning where he kind of says, oh, uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, you don't owe me anything uh, to this kind of poor family for your um, daughter's medical treatment. But he does insist on getting a kiss from the little girl in a scene that like for, for the 50-something Gary Cooper at this point, it does feel a little bit creepy to me. It gets a little bit, like, pedophilic, but, you know, that's maybe just me kind of reading something into it. Um, the guy's actually kind of a monster because he's, like, using his uh, resources and his authority and his kind of moral authority to uh, manipulate the people around him. Um, there's a comic relief character um, played by Carl Malden um, who's named Frenchie, um, and at first, you know, you kind of see him uh, kind of wandering around and being goofy. Um, literally the first time you see him, he's, uh, got a boil on his ass that he needs the doctor to lance. Um, but he, uh, this guy kind of becomes increasingly unhinged and violent after a, a Swedish woman named Elizabeth, who's played by Maria Schell, uh, gets rescued, um, from injuries, um, due to a, a stagecoach accident, and, uh, she becomes close with Frail. Um, she and Frail kind of become friends and possibly kind of romantic interests, but, uh, Elizabeth is also kind of into Rune, um, so uh, there is this kind of complicated three to four person relationship kind of going on um, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because you don't really get a sense of the characters enough to really kind of follow like kind of the emotional through line. Um, basically, it ends, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth kind of um, goes off to uh, start her own gold claim. Uh, Rune goes with her. At this point, he's uh, realized that... Um, you know, Frail isn't going to turn him in. Um, he actually threw the uh, the unique bullet that was supposed to be the big evidence against running away uh, towards the beginning of the film. And uh, you, you kind of uh, end up with, uh, after they finally find some um, cash, you get uh, a riot over the gold claim. Um, and there are some really credible threats of rape uh, from Frenchie towards uh, Elizabeth. And the town just burns down to the ground. Um, Frail's almost hung. Uh, by the uh, town because there's this uh, kind of medicine do this uh, medicine man this uh, kind of um, pre-scientific medical person who is um, 
and basically sees Frail as kind of cutting into his business model. Uh, but Elizabeth saves everybody by uh, giving up her gold claim, and it kind of ends with this sense that Frail and Elizabeth are going to start boning. Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, it's a really, really kind of odd film. Um, if you're a fan of Gary, Gary Cooper, it's worth uh, seeing. But um, I, this is kind of forgettable, and honestly, I had to go back and find a plot synopsis to really even dig that much out of it. It's, uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm missing something with this film. Um, it was based on a novel. Um, I might one day kind of go and try to find the novel and see if the, the novel kind of makes more sense out of it. But, um, yeah, really strange film. And um, um, so that one's enough. The, the next two I'm going to talk about, I'm going to kind of talk about together. These are uh, two films by John Ford. Um, My Darling Clementine from 1946 and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962. And no, I had not seen either of these films before now. I'm not a real film nerd, so you shouldn't be listening to this at all. Um, Ford is kind of broadly known for these, like, expansive landscapes and this kind of, uh, like, deft camera work and, and, uh, you know, excellent framing and cinematography and all that sort of thing. But I think both of these films really represent uh, something else that he was really uh, able to do, and that is he had a, a deep understanding of character, um, something that I think was lacking in some of the performances in The Hanging Tree, which was not directed by John Ford. Um, and he's also got a real gift for directing comedy. There are some really interesting kind of comic sequences in both of these films. Um, it's subtle, it's small, but um, there's some really, there's some really funny stuff. Um, so let's start with uh, My Darling Clementine. This is from 1946. Um, this was my favorite film of the three. Um, it is the first cinematic telling of the gunfight of the OK Corral myth, um, or event. It's, I mean, it's, it was a real event, but it has kind of uh, uh, risen into myth uh, just over the retellings and retellings uh, over the years. Um, there was a novel in the 30s that this is based on. Um, it takes a lot of liberties with real events. Apparently the novel does, and then this is based on the on the novel. Um, so this isn't like if you're looking for like the historical uh, background of the Gunfight of the OK Corral. This is not the place to start. Um, but it is probably Ford's greatest film. Um, Roger Ebert considered it so. Um, and, you know, I have a deep respect for Roger Ebert, so um, we'll just, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it absolutely is because I haven't seen all of Ford's films, but it's pretty fucking good. Um, basically, you've got Wyatt Earp. He's played by Henry Fonda in a great fucking performance, um, as Henry Fonda just always did. Um, anyway, he comes into the town of Tombstone, and he becomes marshal after finding out his brother was killed by cattle rustlers. Um, later on, he comes into contact with this gambler named uh, Doc Holliday, who's played by Victor Mature, and the two strike up this kind of ambiguous and fractious friendship. Um, this is after a uh, one of the funny sequences. You actually get a, a bit where... Um, first coming into town, Henry Fonda, uh, as Herb has to, um, wants to get a shave. And, uh, you get this kind of, a big old fancy, uh, barber's chair, you know, the first of its kind in the, in the area. And, um, there's a, uh, this, the kind of crazy racism thing going on where there's an Indian who's drunken and he's, like, shooting up the place. And, uh, there is some, some good comedy with, uh, you know, kind of, um, <laughs> you know, Ford, uh, or pardon me, not Ford, uh, Fonda kind of going like, oh my god, how do you even, how can you get a shave around here without, with all these, you know, guns going off? Um, pretty funny stuff, pretty cool, uh, little sequence, uh, despite the kind of period racism. So, uh, you know, he and, he and, uh, Doc Holliday kind of get, get into a friendship. Um, a little later on, Clementine, um, Kathy Downs, uh, shows up one day. Um, she's the ex-fiance of Holliday's and then quickly begins to be attracted to Earp. Um, 
The Doc's girlfriend, Chihuahua, who's played by Linda Darnell, who's basically my dead girlfriend at this point. Um, hopefully she would consent to that. Um, you know, I just adore her. Um, she's a little bit miscast in this role, but she's magnetic and she kind of steals a lot of the scenes she's in. But she has very, very little to do. Um, this was uh, during a period when she was uh, really uh, fighting with the studio and uh, really didn't, I think, really was just looking for work, but really didn't like being on this film very much. Um, anyway, uh, Chihuahua uh, ends up having a necklace that Earp recognizes as being um, formerly owned by his now-deceased brother, and he knows she could only have gotten it by the person who killed the brother. Um, she says she got it from the dock, um, but then eventually she relents and reveals that she got it from one of the Clanton brothers, the Clanton brothers being the cattle rustlers we kind of saw at the very beginning of the film, and that sets up the kind of emotional stakes for the gunfight um, that you get at the end. So um, most of the tellings of, of the kind of the, the gunfight of the OK Corral um, really kind of focus on this idea that, uh, you know, the gunfight, we're all just, we're just kind of treading water to get to the gunfight. Um, this is a very different film than that. This is a film where um, the whole point is to kind of reveal this kind of very kind of complex fractious nature of all the relationships in the film in the film you almost get this um not even a love triangle but a love quadrilateral between um chihuahua clementine um doc holiday and wyatt earp you kind of get this kind of sense of like different kinds of romantic relationships possibly being built and different kinds of friendships being built and um you know kind of the various characters respect each other um to different degrees um but uh, it's kind of about the way that society is kind of being built, and then there's this kind of external factor, these kind of uh, outside actors, the the rustlers who are kind of coming in and, and threatening um, our heroes with uh, violence, you know, and, and death, and uh, actually do, and obviously they do uh, kill uh, the brother James before, you know, kind of off screen early on in the film. This is uh, probably a masterpiece, um, as, I, as I mentioned. Uh, this is um, a really, really phenomenal film. Uh, the version that I watched is uh, kind of a shitty copy on YouTube. Um, it's really um, probably worth spending the, the three bucks to, uh, to rent it um, or you know, find it through some other means. Um, there is a, a Criterion disc that I'm actually interested in, but it's a little bit out of my price range right now. But I know you can uh, view this legally on uh, YouTube or Google Play or um, probably Amazon for uh, just a few bucks. So uh, probably worth uh, visiting uh, via that method if you're um, so inclined to do so. Uh, it's got, uh, I mean, four really, really great performances in it. And um, it's, uh, it's gorgeous, even though it's, it's, it's black and white. Um, it's got this kind of silvery sheen to the photography. It's got this really, really beautiful um, setup, and uh, I just, I, I really had a great time watching this. Um, the uh, characters are really, really well drawn, and uh, yeah, it was just, it was a really great viewing experience. I'm highly recommended. The third film I'm going to talk about today, and uh, this is one that I definitely have issues with. Um, that is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. This is from 1962. And uh, it actually has James Stewart, John Wayne, um, Vera Miles, uh, Lee Marvin, um, Edmund O'Brien, Lee Van Cleef, and Woody Strode as Pompey, who, if this was a full episode of They Must Be Destroyed on site, I might try to put together a, uh, you know, a, some of the gay subtext between he and uh, John Wayne, who actually, uh, I was kind of reading the background, they did not fucking get along at all on set because of various reasons, which I don't think had much to do with uh, John Wayne's racism, but uh, might have. Um, anyway, this is kind of the big uh, the big selling point of this, is that it's uh, James Stewart and John Wayne um, together in there. The, I think this is the only film they ever did together. Um, they're, they're both in their 50s at this point, so they're both a little bit old uh, to kind of be playing Western heroes. 
But uh, this is a really fucking amazing film. Um, for the first, uh, it's about a two-hour film, and for the first uh, about hour and a half, hour, 40 minutes, um, this is uh, basically a masterpiece. Um, it starts off, you kind of get this uh, idea that um, uh, James Stewart's kind of ridden into town uh, on a stagecoach, uh, and, and it's kind of in this sort of present day or, you know, in, in around 1910 or so. Um, and um, Tom Donovan, who's played by John Wayne, has died. He's going to come in for the funeral. Um, he's this kind of big uppity-up-muckety-muck uh, guy who's got a, you know, he's a senator. He's, he's you know, well-respected, et cetera, et cetera. He spent a year as kind of um, working on irrigation products, projects and, I guess, electrification, all sorts of things to uh, build the town up. Um, and uh, after a few minutes, he starts to tell this story of, like, how he became the man who shot Liberty Valance. Uh, you kind of learned that uh, uh, the younger James Stewart was, uh, you know, just kind of a lawyer. He was coming from the East. He was coming to uh, kind of settle in a town. He was bringing his uh, law books. He has his case full of law books. And his stagecoach is robbed by Liberty Valance, who is played by Lee Marvin. And Lee Marvin is phenomenal in this fucking film. Um... Liberty Valance is a brutal thug of a person. Uh, Liberty Valance uh, literally carries a, a horsewhip and uh, just whips his victims with it. Um, it. It's it's brutal. It's awful. It's it's violent. It's shockingly violent for 1962. Um, and I, I it's just it's a phenomenal phenomenal performance. Possibly the greatest performance in the film. Um, one of my favorite. Uh, Probably my favorite villain I've seen in a film this year. I, I'd have to go back and look at all the other films I saw this year to make sure. But that's a God damn, that was a fucking amazing performance. Um, so, uh, basically, James Stewart, uh, as Rance Stoddard, he gets um, almost killed by Liberty Valance, uh, left for dead. Um, he's discovered in the uh, desert by uh, John Wayne's character, Tom Donovan. Um, he's brought to this uh, kind of restaurant where there are these uh, basically uh, women who are uh, nurses and uh, who uh, kind of nurse him back to health, and he's allowed to stay um, in the um, in back of the... Uh, restaurant he uh, does dishes to uh, kind of pay his rent pay his way and um, you know it really is kind of uh, one of the interesting things about the film at least for me there are some interesting gender politics um, which I'll get into here in a minute but it's also you know you really see the only people who actually do fucking work in this film are um, the women and uh, the, the head you know the kind of the main uh, female character is uh, named Hallie um, and uh, she's played by Vera Miles. Um, she's really good. You'll have seen her in a bunch of Hitchcock films, actually. If you um, if you check out her IMDb page or her Wikipedia page, you can find other stuff that she's in. Um, she's really, really good. Um, so basically what happens is um, Stuart, um, as Rance Stoddard, he wants to bring Liberty Valance to justice. He wants Liberty Valance to pay for his crimes through the legal system. Um, he's a liar, and that's that's what he prioritizes. Um, he is basically laughed at by everyone else in the community um, who fear for his life because he refuses to pick up a gun to defend himself. Um, in particular, John Wayne's uh, character, Tom Donovan, is uh, presented as kind of the uh, polar opposite to this. He's presented as this sort of, like, he's the one who's actually going to go out and, like, save the day, and he's, you know, constantly kind of uh, belittling... Um, Stoddard, uh, saying you're going to need a gun, there's no other way to do that. In fact, um, this is the film where John Wayne first starts using the word pilgrim in the way that you're uh, kind of used to the John Wayne, you know, uh, pilgrim, and uh, so that's that's definitely one of those historical artifacts where suddenly he starts saying pilgrim everywhere and like as, as a kind of a cultural osmosis for like, you know, <laughs> we just go, what the fuck, that's just 
something we're just used to him saying, but this is actually the first time he said it, and it's very late in his career. Um, I would have assumed he would have uh, said it at some point in the 30s or 40s, but um, anyway, so uh, you get this opposition between uh, Donovan and uh, Stoddard in terms of like how to deal with this situation, and this is um, kind of exemplified uh, not only because there is uh, the, the uh, Marshall, the town Marshall, is a complete fucking joke. Um, he's uh, basically a cowardly hick. Um, he's definitely the comic relief of the of the film, and uh, he's he basically never shows an ounce of uh, personal integrity or any kind of desire to do his job at any point in the fucking film. Um, so what we have is you know the kind of uh, lawful authority um, is refusing to act and is overtly um, treated as as uh, nonsensical and overtly treated as comical. You know, the, the, and yet Stuart's character, uh, Stoddard, you know, still believes in kind of the rule of law. The interesting gender politics here, um, which I'll, I'll bring up just because I think it is, for me, one of the most interesting things about the film is that, um, he's washing dishes in the back. He's hanging out with the women and the, and this kind of old man who owns the restaurant. Um, he's washing dishes. He's happy to wash dishes. He wants to earn his keep. He's wearing an apron. And the other characters in the film actually reference him. Um, basically, I mean, um, Lee Link, um, Liberty Valance, uh, Lee Marvin's character, um, actually references him as, uh, you know, dishwasher. I mean, he's basically calling him a sissy for the entire length of the film. Um, there's a particular moment where, um, in the restaurant, uh, uh, Stoddard is serving a, uh, steak to John Wayne's character, and, um, essentially gets, uh, he gets tripped by Liberty Valance. And uh, drops the stake on the floor, and uh, it almost comes to a murderous standoff between John Wayne and uh, uh, Lee Marvin. But uh, Stewart kind of doesn't let that happen. He intervenes, and he says, "You guys are mad if you're going to kill each other over, over a fucking stake." Um, the film really wants us to side with uh, this sort of middle ground between uh, John Wayne and James Stewart. I understand kind of what it's going for, um, particularly kind of uh, towards the end. Um, things do kind of end up being a uh, end up in a standoff between uh, James Stewart and uh, Lee Marvin. Apparently, and I hear I'm going to spoil a movie that's fifty uh, something years old, fifty five years old. So um, you know, spoilers, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, you know, apparently James Stewart does uh, kill a Liberty Valance um, in this gunfight, despite being, you know, lesser armed and not as capable of a gun. Uh, you kind of find out later that, oh no, John Wayne actually did it for um, personal reasons involving um, his love for Hallie, uh, which is another subplot in the film that's really, really fascinating, but I'm not really going to get into quite uh, quite for this point. I mean, there is this kind of love triangle between the three characters that I think is really compellingly drawn, and I think that... Um, Wayne's best performances in the film are revolve around his, his love for Hallie. So you get this kind of idea that we're supposed to kind of think that, like, yes, the, the rule of law and the education and the knowledge, um, the school that uh, James Stewart kind of provides are positive things and um, good for the town. But you also kind of get the sense that, uh, you know, he's not quite man enough to really do what needs to be done and that you really needed a John Wayne to kind of be the, um, the, the the real authority figure who could who lets all this happen, and so there is this kind of like might makes right argument here. Um, there's also this uh, this is kind of paralleled with the fact that like political organization is actually a major theme of the film. In fact, the whole um, kind of 
thing at issue that kind of draws to the the final events of the film is the fact that uh, this uh, kind of unnamed territory is attempting to um, become a state. And, um, you know, so basically you've got the homesteaders who are kind of on one side of this this picket line who are um, trying to um, organize for statehood and kind of get all the benefits and the roads and the, you know, irrigation projects and everything that statehood would offer. And they're paired up against the kind of um, violent thuggish uh, ranchers or, um, you know, cattlemen, rustlers, not, not um, ranchers, but they're kind of paired up against those guys. And uh, this kind of uh, conflict between them really becomes the central kind of ideological conflict in the film. I think it's, I mean, it, it definitely kind of, you know, I'm reminded a little bit of Mr. Smith Comes to Washington, or Goes to Washington, uh, which does kind of get this kind of very simplistic moral political calculus that it engages in through much of the, the last third of the film, um, where the, the ranchers are kind of, um, you know, unambiguous bad guys, and the, um, the uh, homesteaders are kind of unambiguously good. Um, or at least they're, they're a little more complicated than that. But, I mean, we do kind of see, like, oh, statehood isn't necessarily a really good thing, which is, uh, you know, kind of a, a question that I think, you know, that, you know, when we talk about kind of political activity, we definitely think about, like, the way that civilization is kind of treated as an unparalleled good is sometimes uh, questionable in terms of the way that we kind of view these texts. But um, this film really is, uh, really does kind of present this kind of, I think, fairly naive kind of view that, you know, like the real belief in American values and the American value system, which is, um, I mean, it's understandable. And I mean, it, asking those questions would definitely complicate the film much more than I think anybody was able to do in 1962. I'm not even sure anybody would bother with that in 2016. Um, but it is a little bit simplistic. And I think that the way that the um, political activity becomes uh, kind of treated as uh, that... The point was that James Stewart's character couldn't murder, uh, or didn't actually murder Liberty Valance, and that uh, you know his political career is built on a lie. It kind of becomes the the central theme of the final um, third of the film, or the final thirty minutes, and it kind of becomes like the meaning of the film is that oh we need myths and legends and we're we're not interested in facts and that sort of thing, and that it's it's worthwhile to. Um, allow uh, James Stewart's character to go on being the quote-unquote man who killed Liberty Valance. And I definitely don't agree with that. Like, uh, I, I definitely, I think that it's it's a really bad message to have in a film. And I think that it's, um, it was really disappointing to kind of get there and realize that this, like, what I thought was a really kind of complicated look at the role of violence in society and the role of, um, you know, kind of uh, organized political activity kind of gets turned into this simplistic, moralistic thing. And, um... Yeah, I just, uh, it was really disquieting to me, and I, I'm not quite sure. I really haven't worked out all my thoughts on that. And this is kind of where I, I start to think about in terms of uh, the events that happened today. You know, the uh, 50 people murdered by some homophobic dickbag, regardless of his ethnic background um, or religious background. There's a man who walked into a uh, gay club with an assault rifle and some explosives and killed or injured over 100 people. This person, I think we can all agree, is the scum of the fucking earth. And how we deal with that as a society is kind of fundamentally the question that we have to answer in terms of the way that we just 
politically organize ourselves. Um, you know, the the man who shot Liberty Balance would 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 argue. You know, I mean, ultimately we have James Stewart's approach to this is you know, well, we need laws and we need to organize and we need to you know kind of find um, ways of uh, dealing with these problems that are not. Uh, based on the whims of individual people. Now, I mean, this guy who, who killed all those people, um, at least the suspected shooter, because um, we haven't gotten the confirmation at the time of this recording, was killed in the shootout. So, so uh, you know, obviously he doesn't have a uh, specific, um, you know, this isn't really based on him, per se, because he's already fucking dead. But, you know, it is a question of, you know, the film would seem to argue that in these situations, what we have is what we need is this kind of violent response, and what we need is uh, to to push back with all our might um, against this um, kind of I'll just call it evil. And I agree with that, but I think that the methods matter, and I think that responding to violence with more violence is not necessarily the message I want to be sending I think that there is a I think violence should be an absolute last resort and I think that in the long run we only build societies built based on the uh, the less hyper masculinized ideal presented by the James Stewart character presented by Rand Stoddard and I think ultimately the perspective of Tom Donovan that the only way to deal with this is to kill it essentially is not is not a healthy one for us and i think that the westerns you know different westerns will fall different places on the spectrum but i think there is this kind of fundamental thing where we we go to westerns and we watch westerns for the excitement for the you know the violence and we love the action scenes and all those sorts of things but they do not present these at least the good ones and, and both Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and uh, particularly My Darling Clementine do have a really um, interesting kind of complex look at the way we treat violence. But I think both of these films um, are asking questions about this and kind of presenting it in this kind of fairly nuanced way. But I also think that the message that we often get from these kinds of films is, that ultimately, is ultimately a fascistic one that what we need is a strong, powerful person to stand up and, um, you know, kill the bad guys. You know, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, by my standards, you know, Tom Donovan is, is essentially a Trump supporter. And fuck that shit. Anyway, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this episode. Um, I had a lot of, I have a lot more thoughts about all these films. Um, but it's kind of hard just to talk to myself. And I didn't want to literally write an essay and then just read it um, because that would be kind of pointless. Um, find all our stuff at uh, They Must Be Destroyed on site. That's tmbdos.podbean.com. And I'm um, sure Lee has his little kind of outro he can uh, play for you. And um, I'm hoping he puts uh, some, I hope you find some cool version of My Darling Clementine. I have to do the outro music here. So. Uh, thanks for listening. Hopefully next week you're going to get to hear us talk about uh, Predator 2 and Robocop 2, and I have lots of thoughts about those. That's going to be a fun episode, and I promise not to talk about Donald Trump in the next one. So uh, thanks for listening, and cheers.
should have gone back to the F sharp minor and come what, back out one of those times. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched oispaceman.com, where you can find his sci-fi theme podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.